0: of the Romance of the Romanovs. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org by Jenny Cochran, West Vancouver BC Canada Jenny Marie Cochran at gmail.com. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin McCabe. On an earlier page, I remarked that the element of romance passed out of the story of the Romanovs with the last lovers of Catherine and the murder of Paul. This is true of what we may call personal romance, but it will have been apparent that a larger, impersonal romance now opens. Not individual Romanovs, but the Romanov dynasty, must fight for existence. Life at court is now too earnest for bibulous companions of monarchs and handsome lovers of queens and plots of the ante-room. The comedy is over. If one may call a comedy the enthronement of a selfish and profligate monarchy upon the poverty and ignorance of millions of human beings, the play now assumes the somber note of tragedy the people represented by a few of the educated few begin to awaken and claim their rights the rest of the story is a ghastly record of the efforts of the Romanovs to prevent the spread of that awakening nicholas I, who succeeded alexander represents the struggle of the dynasty in a form which might be reconciled with conscience he differed materially from alexander in two respects first although he was like alexander moderately endowed in intellect he had great strength of character and would stubbornly pursue any policy which he adopted in the second place that policy was inevitably shaped by the accident that he was born many years after alexander the eldest son of paul I had received his education at a time when catherine was under the influence of the french humanitarians nicholas came to the years of discretion during her second phase when the revolution had soured her taste of all things french and liberal his chief tutor had been a french immigrant an incompetent teacher and a bitter enemy of liberal ideas nicholas had grown up a rough and conceited boy later he had abler teachers but he had yawned over their lessons he had in eighteen seventeen married a daughter of the king of prussia and like almost all the romanovs he thought a minute acquaintance with military drill the first equipment for life in spite of hints from alexander he refused to prepare for the serious task of governing a great nation by an unfortunate accident his vague despotic mood was at the very opening of his reign hardened into an attitude of fierce hostility to the new culture his elder brother constantine had as i said forfeited his right to the throne he had fallen in love with a charming polish lady the countess jeanette grudzinski after divorcing his first wife has no amount of personal charm not associated with royal blood fitted a woman to occupy the throne of elizabeth and catherine the tsar had in 1822 given him the alternative of losing either the lady or his right to the throne, Constantine had not a regal disposition. He married Jeanette and abdicated the right he had to the throne on the restored principle of inheritance. Nicholas knew of this abdication, though it was otherwise known only to a few intimate counselors, but he knew that there was much feeling against him in St. Petersburg, and he proceeded diplomatically. He proclaimed Constantine Tsar prince goldson and others who knew of the abdication begged him to refrain until the council had opened a certain sealed letter which alexander had left but nicholas persisted and sent word to his brother at warsaw constantine refused the throne and for several weeks letters went backward and forward nicholas was very much attached to his brother but it is probable that he wanted time to study the threatening situation in st petersburg and secure the stability of his throne He yielded on December 13th, and fixed the following day for the taking of the Oath of Allegiance. On the 14th, a large body of troops and the customary crowd of citizens assembled in the square, and suddenly the cry, Long live Constantine, rang from the lips of various companies of the soldiers. Long live the Constitution, was also shouted, and it is said that the ignorant troops, who had been told to add this, thought that it was the name of Constantine's Polish wife, Nicholas, who did not let courage, came out of the palace and endeavored quietly to convince the soldiers that his brother had abdicated. They repeated their cries, and the nucleus of mutineers began to grow and form a compact body. It is thought if those who had arranged the plot had had more courage, it might have succeeded. But Prince Trubetskoy, the leader, kept out of sight, and there was no vigorous direction. General approached the soldiers to reason with them, and was shot. The Metropolitan of St. Petersburg, his golden cross lifted high in the air, next addressed them, and he was contemptuously told to go home and mind his own business. The night was falling, and it was feared that under its cover a serious riot would occur. Nicholas ordered blank firing, and when the rebels jeered, ordered grape shot, and the rebellion was over. After the burial of the victims came the inquiry, and it was thorough and protracted two hundred and forty were arrested and they included men of the highest rank in st petersburg and many officers of the army princes counts barons and generals were on the list of the condemned the five ringleaders including two colonels of military distinction were sentenced to be quartered but the tsar commuted the sentence to hanging the death sentence had become so unusual in russia that a bungling amateur made a horrible tragedy of the business But those five first martyrs of the Russian people met their death with impressive dignity and courage. Thirty-one were sentenced to be beheaded, and were sent to the mines for life. Seventeen were condemned to the mines, and had their sentences changed to twenty years' imprisonment. Others went, with their wives and families, to Siberia or to remote provinces. And Tsar Nicholas I went to Moscow to be crowned. Nicholas was sufficiently intelligent to realize that this conspiracy of soldiers and nobles and intellectuals was now a thing. In the annals of russia he had a very candid memorandum drawn up from the subversive literature which was taken with the conspirators and he carefully studied the condition of russia as they had seen it the new tsar had a type of mind entirely different from that of his brother he had a clear robust and narrow intelligence unclouded either by mysticism or moral hypocrisy he seriously considered the evils of the empire the corruption of officials the arrears of payment which led to extortion The heavy taxes, the parity of justice, the general squalor, and considered the evils of the empire, ignorance, the state monopoly of drink, the shocking condition of the serfs, and so on. These things must be remedied, and they must be remedied by the God-appointed person, the Tsar. That was his attitude. In his coronation manifesto, he said. The statutes of the land are gradually perfected, the faults corrected, the abuses remedied, not by insolent dreams of destruction, but from above. The new star was for true enlightenment, and the other enlightenment any unauthorized enlightener must look out. That was the note of the early part of the reign of Nicholas I. Speransky was brought from his retirement and told to carry out the reforms he had projected. His older code of laws was not passed, but he was directed to codify the existing laws of Russia, which was something. There were not competent lawyers in Russia to ensure the proper administration of justice, and young men were sent abroad to study law. But no youth must go and acquire education abroad for any other purpose. No foreign teachers or tutors must be tolerated any more in Russia. No foreign ideas must be permitted to taint the purity of the docile Russian soul. No noble could remain abroad more than five years and no commoner more than three years. A very rigorous and complete censorship was set up. All manuscripts, even the manuscripts of journalistic copy, must be revised before they reach the printer. Any that ventured to recommend the ideas which were in France leading up to the Revolution of eighteen thirty, and in England to the Reform Bill of eighteen thirty two, were suppressed. Intellectual life must concern itself with the native contents of the Russian tradition. It was stifled. Russia was just at the stage of the literary renaissance, but it was directed into this channel, and as it was mainly artistic, it contrived to thrive on nationalist soil. Pushkin and Gagal wrote their famous stories and poems. Karamzin founded Russian history of the dynastic type. Young men like Turgenev, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy began, at the end of the reign, to take up the artistic tradition. The national drama was advanced, but it was all genuinely Russian. The new theologies and philosophies and sciences of the West were banned. The censorship was moderated a little in 1830, when Prince Levin, a religious but cultivated man, became minister of education. For a time, the anathema was confined to matters which had a plain political import. But after a few years, a reactionary succeeded Prince Levin, and the task of preventing enlightenment was rigorously resumed. The Second Revolutionary Wave was slowly spreading over Europe the stupid and harsh dynasty of the French kings forever, the reform of the parliamentary franchise was now won in England. An historic fight for freedom and knowledge was raging in Austria, Italy, Spain, and Portugal. Everywhere it was this detestable new middle class which was assailing the old traditions. Young men of the working class today have little conception in how overwhelming a proportion the champions and martyrs of, quote, the people, unquote, in those sanguinary days belonged to the middle class. The task of rulers plainly was to check literature and the university life, which were manufacturing this intellectual middle class. Literature of a modern kind was entirely suppressed. The universities were watched by the police, the new secret police, which Nicholas created as an instrument of the threatened autocracy and controlled after a time by the clergy. The Slavophile creed was elevated to the rank of a philosophy, against this bold scheme of human development which the liberals were basing upon the philosophy of hegel the quote, sound unquote, teachers pitted a very plausible static creed it was they said the peculiar gift of the russian soul to reconcile the jarring elements of life which in the west created only discord these new notions of democracy and evolution which was just emerging from the pit in england and rationalism only increased the misery of life Look at the contrast of the restless proletariat of England or France and the Russian peasant. Self-absorption in love, as taught by Russian Christianity, not self-assertion, as taught by religious and political rationalism, was the creed to make people happy. The influence of the church was ardently enlisted. Nicholas was sincere. He read a page of the Bible every night to his wife and liked to have sincere people about him. He got rid of our chief and the converted atheist Magnitsky, and he upheld the abbot Foti. The Bible Society was directed to return to England, and its property was confiscated. The Roman Catholic Church had made progress under the liberal Alexander. It was tracked, and its property confiscated. The secret police penetrated study and bordure in search of traces of heresy. In Poland, four and a half million Roman Catholics were, quote, converted, unquote, to the Orthodox Church. In Protestant Livonia, the Russian priests and officials did almost as they will. School children were damped with holy water and oil, and counted members of the Orthodox Church. Presence of money and land settled the hesitating consciences of their parents. The Russian Church supported the autocracy and anathematized culture. All Russians must therefore belong to the Russian Church. It must not be supposed that this drastic campaign extinguished the light in Russia. It merely compelled men to hide their light underground, or to speak and write with discretion. A sullen and stern fight went on all the time. Once the Catholics of Poland and Hungary had tried to shut off Russia from the culture of the West, and they had eventually failed. Now the Tsars, who had torn down the barrier, would set up a barrier of their own. It had no greater chance of lasting success, though it did postpone the awakening of Russia. In the end, when a third revolutionary wave spread over Europe, Nicholas doubled his precautions. Not more than 300 students were allowed at each university. This was, quote, true enlightenment, unquote. But a nobler race was rising amidst the densely ignorant mass, and Nicholas I could not crush it. It may be asked what he did for the honest improvement of the country, which he had sincerely regarded as the task of his autocracy. Very little. To educate the mass of people was, of course, a mischievous delusion in the creed of Nicholas I. The spread of elementary education was either arrested or carefully controlled. Under Speransky's early influence, he appointed an official, Count Kisilev, to look after the 18 million serfs on the Crown Estates, and the official was a good man. Schools of a kind were established. The filthy and unhealthy habits of the people were partly corrected. In 1842, a serf was enabled by statute to purchase his freedom. In 1848, it was enacted that the serfs of an insolvent landowner might collectively purchase the estate. Nicholas encouraged nobles to free their serfs. Then came the French Revolution of 1848, with its echoes all over Europe, and Nicholas abandoned reform. Even within the limits of his own plan, he had rendered insignificant service in comparison with the task which the papers of the conspirators had impressed on him. The thirty years of his reign were occupied in fighting the light which from all sides now sought to penetrate the darkness of russia the wars which interrupted or accompanied the emperor's efforts do not properly concern us but in some features they illustrate his personality and work on this side also the numerality of the Romanovs was degenerating rapidly into causes tree alexander had sought neither war nor territory the dynasty was converted from the brutal attitude which had put the quintessence of glory and conquest by the sword Alexander interfered in European affairs only in the lofty interests of justice and civilization. Nicholas also was a lover of peace and justice, and on this plea he started, or resumed, the Russian policy of expansion southward, which has since cost Europe so much blood. As is well known, Nicholas had provocation. Indeed, until some other force can secure protection for the weak, it remains an act of chivalry for the strong to do battle for them. That at least was the almost universal sentiment, in the earlier half of the 19th century, and we saw that the people of St. Petersburg virtually blamed Alexander for not interfering on behalf of the Greeks. Nicholas at once took up the task, that his brother had declined. Greeks and Serbs were trying to throw off the brutal tyranny of the Turk, and the Sultan had sent the most fanatical and least civilized of his soldiers to chastise the insolent Christians. Europe rang with the horror of the massacres, the mutilations, the rapes, and burnings. It was assuredly the place of a monarch who was of like creed to the Greeks, and of the same blood as the Serbs, to demand justice for them, and Nicholas promptly demanded it. He bade the Sultan evacuate the Balkans and grant autonomy to his Christian provinces. England and France were equally moved by the outrages, and not a little jealous of any action of Russia, and the three powers gave the Sultan an ultimatum. His refusal to comply led to the destruction of his fleet at Navarino in 1828, and Greece won its independence it was the beginning of the abominable international jealousy which has so long suffered the turk to play the savage in europe the sultan knew that austria was sufficiently jealous of russia to support him and he believed that england was in the same frame of mind he therefore sent a pompous complaint to russia and demanded an indemnity nicholas knowing well the jealousy of the other powers baffled them by a straightforward inquiry whether he would not be justified in chastising the turks He would, he said, seize no territory in Europe, and would be content to reduce the sultan merely to a decent sense of his duty to his Christian subjects. Austria trimmed in its reply, but England, France, and Prussia consented, and Nicholas led his legion southward. Again I refer to histories of Russia for the details of the Eighteen Months War. It ended with the victory of Russia and the Treaty of Adrianople, September 14, 1829 moldavia and wallachia now romania and serbia were declared autonomous the Dardanelles was open to russian commerce russia secured an indemnity and the right to protect orthodox christians in the ottoman empire in the meantime a new page had opened in the relations of russia and poland the grand duke constantine ruled the kingdom with more fierce than wisdom and he begged his brother who had not been crowned king of poland to come and impress the people of warsaw by that ceremony Nicholas went and swore to maintain the Constitution which Alexander had granted the Poles in 1818. He made matters worse, however, by his arbitrariness. It was with difficulty that he could be induced to tolerate a service of thanksgiving in the Roman Catholic Cathedral. He opened the Diet with a speech in French, French, and he usurped a function of the Diet in nominating senators. The discontent of the Poles, who had absorbed Western ideas, was greatly increased it is said that there was a plot to kidnap the tsar at all events the complaints in the diet became so bitter that he closed it in violation of the constitution and the discontent ran to underground conspiracy this plot was another element in the autocratic education of nicholas I and his successors in july 1830 occurred the second french revolution followed by an insurrection at berlin Nicholas was so indignant that he thought of declaring war upon France, and he did offer troops to the King of Prussia. But at the end of September, he was infuriated to learn that the spirit of revolt had spread to his own kingdom of Poland. Pro-Russians had been massacred, and an attempt had been made to capture the person of the Grand Duke, who had fled to Russia with his few troops. General Chilpicki and the Polish regiments had joined the revolutionaries. A provisional government, including Prince Sartoryskiy and Radziwil, had been established. In his sternest mood, Nicholas sent 120,000 men against the Poles, who hastily closed their intestine differences and gathered an army of 90,000 men. They fought with magnificent bravery, but the superior Russian forces wore them down and entered Warsaw, September 7, 1831. It suited the humor of Nicholas to suppress the rebellion and the suppression like the earlier partition is one of the grim memories which lie between poland and russian today after punishing the captured rebels nicholas went on to remove the very soil in which another rebellion might grow he destroyed almost the last remnant of polish nationality the flag of the white eagle was abolished the constitution torn up the higher schools and universities closed on february 26th poland was declared to be henceforth the province of russia at the other end of the empire, trouble in Georgia and Circassia gave occasion to strengthen in that direction the rule of the Tsar. He now reigned over the largest empire in Europe, and almost every other power, but especially England and France, regarded the growth of Russia with apprehension. Nicholas got the Dardanelles closed against foreign warships, and so secured his black Sea coast against attack. He had assisted the sultan to chastise one of his rebels, Mohammed Ali of Egypt, and was rewarded with this concession. Europe moved toward the Crimean Roar. First, however, Nicholas had an opportunity of crushing another revolt and chastising the supporters of the new ideas. The third revolutionary wave, which was definitely to destroy the old political order in Europe, began in 1848, and it began as usual in France. Louis Napoleon, who was destined to give that country its last and not most fortunate experiment in kingship, made an appeal to Nic- Nicholas for friendship, if not alliance. But Nicholas liked neither an authority which was set up by the will of the people nor a program that pandered to the will of the people. He rejected Napoleon's appeal and turned rather to Austria, where insurrection seemed to be well on the way to shake even the Habsburgs from the throne. The Hungarians were on the point of securing their independence, and the medieval system which Metternich had so long maintained was about to be destroyed. Nicholas gladly supported his brother autocrat. It was the Russian army of 190,000 men which propped up once more the tottering throne of the Habsburgs and prolonged the struggle of darkness against light. Nicholas would learn presently the utter selfishness and ungratefulness of Austrian policy, as his last successor would learn at a later date. The eyes of Nicholas were still upon the South, and the eyes of Europe were upon Nicholas. There can be very little doubt that the whole of the moralizing Romanovs of the 19th century had, behind their professions of disintegrated regard for the victims of the Turk, a more or less clearly conceived design of gaining Constantinople and passing over the Balkans to the Mediterranean. Whatever sincerity there was in the zeal for the protection of the Christian subjects of the Sultan, they were far from insensible to the fact that these helpless Greek Christians occupied territory, which would, if it were annexed, bring Russia at last to a free and warm sea. In Alexander, this motive was so far checked by an effort and sincerity that he would not interfere between the Greek and the Turk, who would be true to his later resolution to help no insurgents Nicholas held an even sterner attitude toward insurgents but the moment christian subjects of the sultan rose against their ruler he entirely forgot that they were rebels against an hereditary autocracy we shall find his successors equally lenient to rebellion in the balkans and it is scarcely a diplomatic secret that the serbs when they received the brotherly support of the last of the romanovs in 1914 look silently and anxiously for a less disinterested purpose in the act of that monarch nicholas now had the sultan almost in a state of vassalage and it seemed to him that he had so far raised the prestige of russia and won the gratitude of austria that he need hardly consider the western powers hence in eighteen fifty three he made a pompous objection when the sultan granted the french certain privileges in regard to the christians of palestine He sent Prince Menchikov to Constantinople to establish a definite Russian protectorate over all the Greek Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Secretly, however, Menchikov was to arrange an alliance with Turkey against France, in case that power gave trouble, and the secret mission became known to the other powers. It has been the diplomatic pastime of the sultans for several generations to take advantage of the mutual jealousy of the Christian powers, such admirable lessons in virtue supported behind the scenes by the english ambassador the sultan refused the russian proposals and nicholas decided upon war he so little knew the secret action of england that he discussed with the english ambassador of saint petersburg a plan for the division of the ottoman empire england should in the teeth of france occupy egypt and russia should take constantinople he at least expected england to be neutral it may at least be said for england which naturally did not care to see the russian giant cast his shadow over egypt and the route to india that it tried earnestly to avert war france was less pacific it would like to see russia in difficulties with england and it secured an alliance with england to the extent of pressing upon the Tsar a round-table conference on the matters in dispute the conference was held at vienna and a scheme of settlement was drawn up The scheme was sultan, supported by a growing feeling in his own country and an astute perception of the international jealousy, declined to accept without modification. And Russia refused to admit the modifications he suggested. Austria had played the Tsar false. In January 1854, the English and French fleets had entered the Black sea The sultan had at the last moment signed the Vienna note, and the Tsar had agreed to sign it with certain modifications. It was austria that procured the rejection of these reserves what came to be known as the crimean war opened nicholas has been severely judged by some historians for his policy the censure is easy for the historian who has before his eyes the issue as well as the commencement of the war russia was beaten and humiliated after appalling sacrifices she was compelled to sign a very disadvantageous peace and her new prestige in europe fell considerably it is perhaps unfair to judge the man by the issue But we may very well surmise that nicholas did little more than cloak an aggressive design in the new mantle of righteousness with which the tsars affected it was as usual the people who paid the course of the war need not be described here by a rapid assault which was represented in france and england as a premature outrage and did much to influence popular passion the russian fleet destroyed the turkish and the russian armies descended south once more before the end of March, England and France declared war in Russia in alliance with the monarch who had for years reddened the soil of Greece and the Balkans with Christian blood. The language of the time reads curiously today. Nicholas issued a manifesto in which he warmly disclaimed any idea of conquest. He drew the sword, he said, only in defense of Christianity, and he was outraged to find France and England supporting the Mohammedan murderer. They must, he said, be jealous of Russia's prosperity and eager to destroy it. England frankly saying in its streets that it would never let the Russians get Constantinople. France openly used the same language, though there were those who said that Napoleon was personally irritated at the Tsar's haughty disdain of his credentials. The war soon centered upon the Crimea and its historic milestones, Alma, Balaklava, Inkerman, Sevastopol, are well known. It entered upon a second year, 1855, and the Russian people murmured bitterly, Nicholas himself must have felt the sting of many of the criticisms. During the long reign of his censors, when public opinion could not be brought to bear upon the administration, official corruption had increased, and both Army and Navy were far below the required standard of efficiency. Nicholas had isolated Russia from the West, yet from the West had come every stimulus to the improvement of the Russian forces. He had reversed the policy of Peter and Catherine, and he seemed to be in danger of losing the lands they had taken a terrible fire of criticism and invective was maintained at st petersburg the censors controlled the press men circulated their views in manuscript nicholas was honest and it is said that at times doubted if the policy to which he had devoted his life was sound but he was stubborn and he thrust aside all suggestions of peace in the midst of the struggle he caught a chill which led to pneumonia he died on march third eighteen fifty five such was the opening of the last phase of the romance of the romanovs the dynasty is sobered not merely by the spirit of the age into which it has passed but by the very impossibility of sustaining its gaieties no monarch who showered the precious national revenues upon lovers or drinking comrades could long hold the throne in such an age insurrection has taken a new form it is no longer the work of a coterie who would place a new monarch on the throne in order that they the conspirators may take the place of the late favorites in the golden reign a new phrase the rights of the people is born or reborn in the world a monarchy by the grace of god must do the work of god not the work of the devil nicholas tries to reconcile the new and the old the new idea of service and the old idea of autocracy he will better the lot of the people not because it is their will but because it is his divine mission and in order to protect his scheme he constructs a new machinery of despotism secret police and cossacks and priests and censors and sophists Against this machinery, we have now to see the Russian people bruise and crush their limbs until it and its autocratic makers are destroyed. First, however, one more effort will be made to pose as autocratic dispenser of justice and charity. The end of Section 16, read by Jenny Cochran, West Vancouver, BC, Canada, j- Cochrane at gmail.com.